Amen. Glory be to our great God. I, I hope we don't sing those words without stopping and thinking about just what they mean. Um, those are weighty words. No more weighty words you could be singing than glory be to our God. It's an awesome thing to see God in His glory and then ascribe that glory back to Him in worship. Lord, thank You so much for this church. Thank You for what a joy it's been to be one of the leaders here for uh, almost 16 years now. And Lord, thank You for this chapter in our history. Thank You for the amazing privilege it's been to lead a flock that is so kingdom and gospel minded and eager to hear from you and serve you with their whole hearts. Lord, thank you for the leadership I've been privileged to serve alongside. Lord, I thank you for the amazing example I've seen in the leaders here at Grace and what a joy it's been to have such a kindred spirit through the years. Lord, thank you for the Gruendikes. I pray for them as they um, begin to, in earnest, make this transition to be part of our family here at Grace. Thank you for the way you've blessed and, and borne great fruit through their ministry for decades now. And I pray that their most fruitful years would be ahead as they join us here. So, Lord, we, we pray that uh, you'd guide them. So many details to work out now. So we pray that you'd help them in all of that as well. Lord, we, we are grateful for your word, and as we go to it now, we pray that we would hear from you as we hear from the Apostle Peter writing to these Christians he loved a couple thousand years ago. And now, Lord, I pray that we would hear from, from you and from him as fresh and powerful and effective as it was intended to be when you inspired him to write these words. So... We pray for the remainder of our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I love this book. I have such a blessing and um, delight to be able to preach the Word, to be required to dive into it at a depth that I have to, to be able to feed folks here at Grace with it. it it's just a, a wonderful uh, privilege. Sometimes it feels a little burdensome to have to devote all that time, but every time I do, I'm grateful and God feeds me. And I pray that you, along with those of us who teach and preach, would come along and be fed as well. And Read this book as we preach through it, and, and then we'll go into Second Peter and, and meditate on it and read it with your family and, and maybe do some background reading and, and really enjoy this ride with us as we go through this book. I've already, just early on here in the series, both in sitting under the preaching of the Word and preparing to preach, been incredibly encouraged and edified and blessed. And this book that I've read many times is taking on a whole new depth and power in my life, and I pray that'll be true for you as well. Well, we started last week by uh, highlighting some of the background issues that Peter actually gets right to in the first couple of verses. He tells us that he's writing to elect exiles that are dispersed uh, around the world. Again, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, uh, Bithynia, all, all these 
areas that are they're spread out and they're elect exiles he highlights the point that they're not home yet they're on their way home as believers in jesus in a fallen and broken world and so he's writing to encourage them and like all the epistles really a primary objective is persevering faith i love that term persevering faith once again we talk use that term a lot when we preach through especially the book of hebrews it's encouragement and instruction and exhortation for all of us to keep going that's what he's doing he's he's trying to encourage these churches to keep going saying i i know it's hard in this world but but it'll all be worth it keep going and he's encouraging these churches to do this. And, and this morning, in the just three verses we'll read and dive in together and look at, he gives us powerful, important teaching on what God has done for us in Christ. If you're a believer this morning, if you've said, not I but Christ, not my righteousness but his, not my sin but his sacrifice, if you've turned from your sin and trusted him, this letter is written to you to encourage you, to give you confidence and hope and deepen your faith so that you persevere with even more faith than you came in here with. If you're not a believer, this passage is written to you so you know what you're missing. And so a a desire, a hunger for what you're missing is increased in your heart and that you go to the only source to meet that hunger and that's Jesus himself who's alive and active as we'll see in our verses this morning. So let's be encouraged. Let's go to the word believing it is as it says, living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and it's it's at work in our lives. Let's go to it together. We're just going to read three verses so please don't check out. If, if you don't pay attention at all the rest of the morning, pay attention now as I read the Bible. Okay? You ready? 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All right, I need a little time to preach, so here we go. Um, you ready? Let's, let's just highlight things. I have 10, but don't even bother counting because I'll probably <laughs> skip one or two and forget to number them. So, so, um, so I have 10. Here, here are the things. Some of you have already nailed it, and I don't even have to spend much time on it because you've done such a good job articulating it already. But the first thing I want you to notice that has been highlighted by you folks is praise is our purpose. I don't want you to miss this. Peter makes sure we see this. Do you see what it says? Right off the bat, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless him. Praise him. Uh, give extravagant adoration to him. Th- this can be a little bit of a confusing term. The NIV likes to clear up that confusion, confusion and just sort of get right to uh, 
a synonym for this word, which is praise be. But to bless God sort of makes us feel like, well, he must not be happy. He must lack happiness or need blessing. And so he must have some sort of lack, some sort of need that we provide for him. And that would really miss it. No, God, out of his strengths, strength blesses us. And in response, we bless him in our adoration, our exaltation of him, our exalting in him. In our worship of him, the purpose is praise. The purpose is worship. And Peter does this over and over again. And right out of the gate, as he's explaining the doctrine of salvation for us, he doesn't start putting out pie graphs and charts and lists of things. He praises God. And that makes sense, doesn't it? This is old Peter, right? How can Peter talk about the grace of God without Deep, heartfelt, gratitude-fueled worship. Do you remember what Peter did as his Savior is going to the cross? He denies Jesus. He he is so afraid for his own safety that even in the face of a little girl, he says, I don't even know him. And he cusses his way to denying his Savior. And he knows forgiveness. He, he, we found out, we saw in the Gospels when we preached through Mark that, that Jesus, when he rose from the dead and conquered sin and death, before he even went and met the other disciples in the upper room, he went and found Peter. And it wasn't to say, how could you? It was to say, Peter, I'm alive. It's all going to be all right. I know in this world you'll have many troubles, but Peter, I've overcome the world. And so Peter was restored and brought back home after his bitter weeping because he denied Jesus. So how could he possibly talk about the grace of God without grateful worship? He can't can't do anything but. I love that as he preaches the truth of God's work on our behalf, that he is modeling for us the response. He's teaching us deep theology, deep teaching about God's saving work, but he does it in a way that is worshipful, grateful, full of affection, not just intellect. It's most certainly filled with ideas we must understand, but those ideas need to fuel worship. Please know that we did not stop worshiping when Walt walked off the stage. That is one of the great misunderstandings of Christian worship. That corporate sung worship in our minds is often the only thing. I've been laboring for years to get Biola to stop having worship chapels. Because you know what they mean by that. Singing chapels. Which implies that if you actually have preaching, the whole thing isn't worship. Right? Uh, Well, this is worship right now. And my goal as a preacher, I have no greater goal than to worship before you as we preach the word and go to it together. If you don't get a sense from we preachers that we're worshiping as we go to the word, that the worship hasn't stopped 
when the music, musicians stop, you're really missing what worship is, is, an intend, is intended to be. He's, Peter is worshiping as he writes really good, important, deep doctrine here. Teaching, theology, biblical understanding, but he can't help but say, praise be to God. And this is a pattern through this whole letter and through the whole Bible. I want you to see how massively important this is. Look, the Bible, I could, have, I could have shown you hundreds and hundreds of passages that pull this out, but let's look at just a few. Isaiah 43, 21. The people I form for myself, so those who fulfill the purpose, the relational purposes of the covenant here, he's saying in Isaiah, the people I formed for myself, why? That they may proclaim my praise. That they may proclaim my praise. I save them, yes, because I love them. And yes, because I have compassion on them. But I save them so that out of that salvation, they will praise my name. They will see me for who I am in that saving work and praise with their mouths and lives. Praise is the purpose of all of it. And we've got to shift to this God-centered perspective. Look at Ephesians 1. Sounds very similar to the things that Peter's saying. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in the conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that, in order that, don't miss that, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be, not just might say praises, but might be to the praise of his glory. We will read through Peter and preach through it, and there will be a lot of ethical, moral, practical commands in there, but grounded in God's finished work to the praise of his glory. If it's not getting there, it's miserably insufficient. It's missing the whole point and can actually become something counterproductive to what God's after through the commands. It can become moralism and being nice people and being religious people and not God honoring God, praising God, worshiping people in both act and word and heart. So please don't be satisfied until you see a praise flowing, a worship flowing out of what we do. Listen to Peter in chapter 4. Very practical, ethical commands. If, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking. The very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. Again, grounded in God's provision. So that, don't miss the so that's. And, the, the, and because of, in the senses. So that in all things... God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. I think the church in America especially so often misses this. This God-centered goal in all of it. And we're too often satisfied in preaching, in worship even, in sung corporate worship times, corporate sung worship, we're satisfied with a time that feels really good and resonates with us rather than deeply desiring for God to be truly worshipped, ascribed worth to, that he's pleased with it, whether anybody liked it very much. And so evangelism and ministry and seeking social justice can seem at times like it's just about us getting our acts together and looking really unified. And whether God's really worshipped or honored isn't really the big main point. It's just so we get our stuff together. No, it's got to have this God-glorifying praise goal. And look at us corporately. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. Do you know how often we stop there in the quotations and memorizations? 
We stop with, oh, isn't that great? We're a people. We have an identity, a unity. Isn't that wonderful? We're all set. Instead of seeing where it goes, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Don't be satisfied with being in the light if that's not being translated into worship and praise and declaring his greatness. There's got to be a God-centered here. And right out of the bat, Right out of the bat, out of the gate, off the bat, uh, mix my metaphors here, uh, right, right out of the bat, uh, Peter, I did that on purpose, uh, uh, is, is praising. See, he does it. He doesn't just lay out a list of soteriological implications of the work of Christ. No, no, he, he praises. Please ask God to give you a heart of praise as you deepen in your understanding of things. What else do I want you to see? Two, the one doing this saving work is our God and Father. What a glorious combination of words. God and Father. It is not a mere human being. Oh, wait. Got to see this. In you, Lord, I've taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. So we get from our lives displaying his glory to now his protection being for what? Be my rock and refuge a strong fortress to save me. And then we'll stop satisfied with being safe and saved instead of where we must go. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, guide and lead me. Do you see again this God-centeredness in all of this? To you, Jack, you came back home for Christmas. Hi, Jack. Yeah. Isn't this true? You're a seminary student now. Yes. And are you dating someone I heard? Anyway, um, <laughs> that's what I heard. I got to keep up on these things, Jack. Hi, Jack. Hey, um, so yes, he's our God and Father. This is a glorious combination. It's not enough if he's our God. He's got to be our God and Father. It's not enough if he's our Father. He's got to be our God and Father. These two have to go together, and they gloriously do in the Christian faith. And I know of no religion that even begins to approach the profundity of putting these two words together like this. He loves us as a God who's all-powerful and infinite, lacks nothing to accomplish his purposes, and that's good. But if he's God our enemy... Or God just our judge, although he is that. If, if he's God just our compassionate counselor, no, he's God our father. He's a God who loves with the love of a father and brings his children home in his powerful work as God. It's a glorious description of who he is. We depend on his character as our God and father. And there's a Trinitarian nature to this work he does in salvation. It's Father, Son, and Spirit accomplishing in this for us. And it's so important that we see that he's the God and Father first and foremost of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Oh, it's so important we get this Christ-centeredness to our understanding of God. The Bible demands we get there. Oh, on the way, we get a progressive journey toward God. God displaying his glory in Christ. But we must follow the revelation of God through to the definitive, ultimate revelation of who he is in Christ. It's not enough to have a vague God with lots of God's attributes. If we don't see God displayed in Christ and go to him, we don't know God. There's a lot of talk these days on this issue, but please know how clear the Bible is on this. Massively clear. 
Now listen to just a few verses along these lines. Whoever does not honor the Son, John says in John 5, does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus wants us to know there that if you want to know God the Father, you need to know God the Son. John 5, 42, he goes on. I know that you do not love God or have God within you. What? He says, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. You don't know God if you don't receive me, he says. He says in John 8, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. This is amazing. He says, the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So if you don't know God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and know him in and through Christ, you don't know God. You actually are rejecting God. Well, that's a hard message, but it's where the Bible demands we go with a Christ-centered understanding of God. A father, son, and spirit displaying who God is in his nature and saving work in Christ. That's where we've got to go, and that's where Peter's demanding we go. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just a vague general idea of God, even true ideas, but ideas that are culminating in Jesus. And one of you pointed this out already. Do you see what it says next? This God is saving us according to his great mercy. God is not a miser. I wonder if there's any accusation and lie Satan tells us about God more than that he's cheap, that he's a miser, that he's not extravagant in his mercy and grace. And so... If we believe that a little bit even, we'll start fending for ourselves and going our own way and demanding things the way we think they should be. And and before you know it, we're not trusting God anymore, but our own designs and efforts. It's great mercy. And notice another thing. This is what Mo was pointing us to. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, made alive. It's so sad that that idea born again in the Jimmy Carter era sort of lost all its born again Christians. Oh, you're one of those born again Christians. As if there's any other kind. (laughs) No, this is saying if you're Christian, you're one of those. The only people who are truly Christians are those who've been made new new creations in Christ, been made alive. He caused us to be born again. The only kind of Christian is a born-again Christian. That's what Jesus tells Nicodemus. This has to be the case if you are rightly related to God in Christ by faith. And so he causes this to happen, and it leads to a living hope, a hope that is alive because the one who brings it's alive. He's not dead in the grave. Jesus is alive. The resurrection is this source in his ministry of this power that we now have to get home safely, looking like Jesus, to a living hope. It's a hope that invades our daily living. It's a living hope because the one who brings it is alive. He is our hope and he's alive, not dead. And it's living because of that. It's also living because it should be part of our daily living. It should be part of everything in our lives. Jesus leaves nothing untouched when he takes over in your life. Stop reserving anything in your mind from his lordship. And have a living hope, a hope that is active because he's active and alive. Because he rose from the dead. Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to, love this, an inheritance that is imperishable, 
undefiled and unfading, kept, maintained, preserved for you. This is great news. I never appreciated this passage nearly as much as I should have. And what helped me tremendously was buying a home. First house we ever bought was in 99 when we moved here. Every job I ever had before that came with living arrangements that I didn't have to keep up. It was amazing. And, and so when we moved here, I began this homeowner blues of as soon as something's mowed, weeded, oiled, painted, repaired, that very second, it starts falling apart all over again. You know what I'm talking about. I, I don't even think about that when I'm doing work at my house. It'd be too discouraging. I'd just go, go get ice cream. <laughs> just let it all fall apart because it is. It's amazing. You're like, man, that looks good. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, not for long. <laughs> Same is true of your body. Same is true of everything. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy is why handymen have jobs, right? <laughs> You know what that is? You never get any energy back. Everything's constantly running down, losing all the time, deteriorating all the time. This inheritance God is telling us about this morning is not subject to the curse. It's not subject to evil. It's not subject to the fall. Unlike everything in creation, it is undefiled, unstained, kept in heaven for you. It's never going to fall apart. And when you watch everything around you falling apart, remember, this inheritance never will. And it's grounded in the resurrection. Listen to Spurgeon. God's deliverance from sin and death is grounded in the resurrection. His hope is sure because God has already accomplished his salvation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's impervious to all the effects that everything else in creation is affected by. If you're keeping track, this is number eight, but I told you not to because it'll get you frustrated. Uh, it, it is kept by God. It's, it's, he's, he's maintaining it. He's keeping it. He doesn't just do it and then let it fall apart. No, it's maintained for you in heaven awaiting your arrival. Now, here's the tough part of this passage. How do you know you'll arrive? It's one thing to say you have uh, an inheritance awaiting you but I don't know if you've noticed, there's a journey to the inheritance, a tough one, filled with persecution and cancer and trials and depression and anxiety and, and all sorts of challenges every day in our lives, not to mention the persecution that these folks no doubt were experiencing. And so on this journey, it's very tempting to say, yeah, maybe I've got that all stored up for me, but am I ever going to get there? And God said, oh yeah, you will. Uh, not only is it guarded for you, what does he say? Verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is preserved, undefiled, and you are guarded by God on the way home. Now, persevering faith is the means by which we get there. And how does he bring that about? I pray he's doing it right now. God has chosen 
to have the means of the Spirit and the Word among the fellowship of the saints to lead to persevering faith that gets us home. And he promises he will get all his children home. And even though there are so many setbacks and detours and failures and sin, just like Peter, you can be confident that the one who rose from the dead is strong enough to get you home until you hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Would some of you now please take Peter's lead and for all of us audibly worship God 